If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. There was once a truce between the Lumen Sages and the Umbra Witches. The Lumen Sages, followers of the light affiliated with the angels of Paradiso and the Sun, held in their care the right eye of light. The Umbra Witches, practitioners of dark arts affiliated with the demons of Inferno and the Moon, held in their care the left eye of darkness. Each clan stood as an overseer of history, and though they differed greatly in beliefs and practice, there was peace between the sages and the witches, if not fear of one another. The sages honored and communed with the angels of Paradiso, also called the Laguna. Upon death, a sage would pass on to an eternity within Paradiso, joining the ranks of the Laguna. The Umber Witches were a bit more hands-on in their allegiance with their deities, the demons of Inferno. The Witches struck bargains of sorts with demons to utilize demonic powers and summonings for combat. This made the Umber Witches extremely powerful and quite dangerous to the wrong person or celestial being. However, upon death, the Umber Witches were submitted to Inferno for all eternity, the price to pay for their dealings with demons. Through their respective affinities, the most powerful of the sages and the witches were able to see into, commune with, and even travel through the three overlapping realities of Paradiso, the human world, and Inferno. These Lumen sages and Umbra witches could also possess the ability to observe and move about their environment in an instant, through temporal control. Little has been retained as to the training regiments required to become a sage or a witch, but through the research of Antonio Redgrave, it was at least known of the Umbra Witches that the training of this clan was exceedingly perilous. It did not matter what bloodline you hailed from, nor your standing within society, be you rich, poor, or otherwise. What mattered was your spiritual energy, your natural capacity for observing and utilizing the energies of Inferno that the Umbra Witches aligned themselves with. And not all witches walked the same path. Their training regiments and specialties were quite varied. As time carried on, as human technologies developed, the witches adapted modern warfare techniques and weaponry into their potential arsenals. It was not uncommon for a young witch to die during training, especially when attempting to master their temporal control method called the Witch Walk. There were laws to keep the balance between the two clans, one prominent law being interrelations between the Lumen Sages and the Umbra Witches was forbidden. To prevent the two eyes of the world from ever being used for evil purposes, the two clans were forbidden from mingling. It was believed that should there be an intersection of light and dark, that calamity would befall the world. Only upon the event of an annual total solar eclipse did leaders and representatives from the two clans meet for negotiations and consort. For centuries, this peace and even fearful cooperation was maintained. The Umbra Witches resided within the Crescent Valley, the Lumen Sages within the Sunrise Valley. But 500 years ago, a law was broken. An Umbra Witch and a Lumen Sage fell in love, and from this secret affair a child was conceived. This was a disaster. The intersection of light and dark, it was forbidden, yet still the Sage and the Witch defied their laws. The Lumen Sage, the father of the child called Baldur, was banished from his clan, and the Umbra Witch, the mother of the child, was imprisoned within the Crescent Valley. The child was a girl, who would be called Cereza. 
Cereza lived amongst the Umbra witches, but was shunned as an outcast. Her mother raised her through the bars of a prison cell, and at first, little Cereza was denied the privilege of being taught the ways of the Umbra witch, but as she grew to be a little bit older, her talents could not be ignored. So rather than let the little one roam about unchecked, she was eventually trained to become an Umbra witch, with great reluctance from the clan elders. Little Cereza befriended another child named Jean, her only friend amongst the clan. The two girls developed a very close bond and played together often as children. But there was a fear within Cereza that never left her. As a child, she would cry to herself. The only acceptance that she experienced came from her imprisoned mother and her friend Jean. She was regularly denounced as an outsider as she grew into a young woman, denied the acceptance that part of her longed for. Conflict slowly brewed between the Lumen Sages and the Umbra Witches because of Cereza's birth, and she knew it. She was the product of a broken law, the intersection of light and dark, the potential calamity of the world according to a prophecy. But unbeknownst to her, Cereza's existence also placed upon her an inheritance, wielder of the left eye of darkness. These mysterious eyes of the world were not defined things, at least not defined to us in the human world. But should the right eye and the left eye be brought together, the rebirth of the creator Jubileus would begin, a sort of calamity upon mankind, all to be remade. The Umbra witches did not desire this. Jubileus was a Dia of Paradiso, and her rebirth would bring the three realities into one world, where light would reign over all. Eventually, conflict broke out between the two clans over this desecrated law and it escalated into an all-out war between the Lumen Sages and the Umbra Witches. So vicious was their fighting that humanity itself was impacted. The Lumen Sages called upon the Angels of Paradiso to aid them, and the Umbra Witches fought with the powers of the Demons of Inferno. And in the end, it was the Umbra Witches who won the battle. The Lumen Sages were all wiped out save one, the exiled sage Baldur, the father of the now-adult Cereza. He now held within him the power of the right eye of light. His daughter, as dictated by the inheritance and prophecy of her birth, held the potential to empower and wield the left eye of darkness. However, this power slumbered within Cereza. The left eye was not opened. Therefore, the eyes of the world could not be united. Jubileus, the creator, could not begin rebirth. At the conclusion of the clan wars, something newly tragic began. The witch hunts. The exhausted Umbra witches were beset upon by humanity and the forces of Paradiso. The women were persecuted, cut down indiscriminately by the masses, hunted relentlessly through all of Europe. The clan war whittled them down in numbers, and using humanity's fear and prejudices, the powers of Paradiso were intent on seeing the Umbra witches completely snuffed out. Until the bitter end, the Umbra witches fought. Before the final attack came, it was Cereza's childhood friend, Jean, who was to take the position of leadership over the suffering clan. Jean's final trial before taking on this role was a test of combat against any opponent she chose. To honor her friend, Jean chose Cereza as her opponent. Though the elders of the clan cried that it was forbidden, Cereza was an outcast and could not participate in the trial, Jean recognized Cereza publicly for what she'd become the most powerful Umbra witch in the clan. And the only worthy challenger for Jean would be her close friend, Cereza. So the two fought. But before a victor could be determined, the Laguna of Paradiso launched their final attack. 
the battle between Jean and Cereza was ceased, and the last stand of the Umbra Witches began against an angry mob of humans and the army of Laguna. But there had been too much strife, too many losses along the way. The Umbra Witches were slowly cut down. Before final defeat could come, Jean placed a seal upon the doors to their sanctuary to keep the forces of Paradiso out for a short time. In her arms, Cereza held the body of her slain mother, and she lost the will to fight on. Jean, though, she was to inherit the throne of the Umbra Witches. She would take charge of the left eye of darkness then. She knew well the history of Cereza and Cereza's father's fate, namely, that Baldur escaped the clan wars and was the holder of the right eye of light. So surely, Baldur must be behind this attack. It must have occurred at the behest of his order. Jean knew the forces of Paradisa would come for the left eye of darkness, to bring together the eyes of the world and to begin the rebirth of their Dia, Jubileus the Creator. This would topple any semblance of balance. This would bring calamity and Jean would not allow it to happen. Cereza's unwillingness to fight on made her an easy target for the legions of Paradiso. Thankfully, the left eye still slumbered, the potential power held within the faltering young woman. This could still be prevented. If the left eye was still dormant, then the rebirth of Jubileus could not begin. So, Jean, Cereza's dear friend, did what she had to do. She cast Cereza into the left eye, the precious red jewel of the Umbra Witches, their most beloved of artifacts. Only Jean and Cereza made it out of the final attack alive. Jean had her slumbering companion sealed into a coffin and safely placed at the bottom of a deep lake, where she would be kept safe from the forces of Paradiso and the searching eyes of her father, Baldur. And there, Cereza remained for 500 years. Jean carried on alone. Her clan wiped out her only living companion in a coffin at the bottom of a lake. She was left to find her own way, but always the threat of Paradiso at her back. At least she was able to stop the rebirth of Jubileus, the creator. Baldur did not rest, however. Instead, for 500 years, he schemed and became more powerful. The lands that were once home to the Umbra Witches and the Lumen Sages was turned into a religious city-state called Vigrid. It had no government to speak of, but was headed by the elusive man now called Father Baldur at the Isla del Sol connected to the mainland. There, he founded a tech conglomerate called the Ithaval Group, creating a huge amount of wealth within Vigrid. And there was only one way on and off the Isla del Sol at Vigrid, making it impossible for unwanted guests to arrive. Vetting was done on all people who petitioned to gain entrance to Vigrid. It was a very tightly controlled landmass. Baldur felt ready to enact his secretive, diabolical scheming about 20 years ago. He hired a journalist named Antonio Redgrave. Redgrave was renowned for his research into and writings on the fabled Umbra Witches and the Lumen Sages. Baldur needed Cereza, and if anyone could track her down, it would be Antonio Redgrave. And with unlimited resources at his disposal, it didn't take long at all for Redgrave to find her coffin at the bottom of a deep lake. And with his young son, Luca Redgrave, bearing witness, Antonio opened the coffin of the mythical Umbra Witch. And with no resistance, the Awakening Witch floated to the surface of the lake. And to reward him for his efforts, angels from Paradiso descended upon Antonio Redgrave, tearing him apart. His son, Luca, 
could not see into the overlapping realm the angels occupied. All he saw was the Umbra Witch before his father. He believed that it was her that murdered his father. The witch vanished, and little Luca Redgrave vowed that he would never stop hunting her. The scent of her perfume lingered on. It was something that he would never forget. But as for Cereza, she could not remember her past. She recalled being one of the last of her kind, a witch, and that the angels of Paradiso were to blame for her troubles. But that was about it. She left that lake with purpose. Kill all the Laguna of Paradiso. Every angel that she could lure and hunt would meet a violent end, and she took with her a new name to replace the one that she lost to time and memory. She became Bayonetta. And now for a short advertiser message. Do you like lore? Yeah. Do you like listening to hours of lore content? Bad boy. Do you want more lore in the future? Uh. Then consider becoming a patron on Patreon, starting at just $2 a month. You get access to Patreon exclusives. You've been naughty! So if you'd like to see more of the Lady of Lore in the future, check out the description of the video and become a patron on Patreon. <clears throat> For 20 years, Bayonetta raised hell and hunted angels. Her powers partially reawoke, but she became a terror to the minions of Paradiso. She made the acquaintance of a powerful demon of Inferno named Rodan, who supplied her with sophisticated weaponry and a place of reprieve within his establishment called Gates of Hell. Also in her corner was an informant named Enzo, who was a true gem of knowledge and insight during Bayonetta's journeys. Father Balder watched Bayonetta from afar for some years, well aware that his daughter had been found and released. But you see, Father Balder didn't want to harm Bayonetta, no, he needed her. The left eye of darkness needed to be awoken. But as the years turned into decades, Bayonetta's memory did not return, the left eye did not awaken. So while his daughter gallivanted about, hunting and killing the angels of Paradiso to appease her demonic masters of Inferno, Father Balder found Jean, Bayonetta's once dear friend and a fellow Umbra witch. A campaign of magical brainwashing began, and Father Balder brought the Umbra witch under his control. Jean would serve as a reminder to Bayonetta of her past, an opponent who could beat the tar out of her, and Jean would push Bayonetta towards the goals of Father Balder. Bayonetta would need to remember her and reach the heights of her powers to awaken the left eye. But just sending Jean to prod Bayonetta along would not be enough. Oh no, things must become more complicated. Bayonetta herself would need to be changed, her past would need to be altered so that the present might suit the conditions of awakening the left eye, but how could Father Balder do something like that? Hmm, well, we'll get to that later. There are other things and events which must play out first. When we meet Bayonetta, she's going about her usual games of luring in the Angels of Paradiso, causing havoc and mayhem and destroying property. This time around, she's in a graveyard where Enzo apparently serves as an undertaker. It's on this day that events have begun to lure Bayonetta into Father Balder's scheme. En route back to Rodan's bar, the Gates of Hell, Enzo explains a bit of a lead that he's gotten on a black market item that's being called the Right Eye, a part of a set called the Eyes of the World. It doesn't ring any bells, but it could be a match for the red gem inside of Bayonetta's umber watch that rests on her chest. It could be a lead to her past. The last sighting of this gem, Oh, it was in Vigrid. 
In a brazen move to intercept the vehicle, a plane is brought down onto the freeway. Inside, a group of ardent believers from Vigrid have committed mass suicide. They did this to ascend into the army of Paradiso to serve in Father Baldur's plan to incite the resurrection of Jubileus. The new angels of Paradiso descend upon Bayonetta, but there's also someone else nearby. Oh my! It's Jean, who does not fight alongside the angels. In fact, she doesn't even tolerate their presence. She takes up arms against these expendable forces and fights alongside her old amnesiac friend Bayonetta. But unfortunately, though the two complement each other's style and attitude, it only takes a shared look for Jean to know that Bayonetta does not recognize her. Bayonetta remembers a glimpse of her from 500 years ago, but can't quite piece together how she knows this strange blonde woman. The left eye is not ready to awaken. Jean leaves in peace, allowing for Bayonetta and Enzo to return to Rodan's bar, the gates of hell. The demon weaponsmith and barkeep Rodan smells a setup in this little venture Bayonetta is going to take. It certainly does seem awful suspicious, doesn't he? A black market gem called the Right Eye showing up in the former homeland of the Lumen Sages and the Umber Witches, with such an extreme price attached to it that no one can afford it. Well, none of it rings a bell to Bayonetta, so off the good witch goes across the globe to the city-state of Vigrid, walking through the plain of Purgatario alongside mankind. Walking within Purgatario makes her invisible to all who don't have spiritual attunement, namely other witches, sages, demons, and angels. It's like walking in privacy in wide open spaces. Bayonetta can do what she needs or wants without humans acting as witnesses. And when traveling towards a station into Vigrid, the creepy cooing voice of Father Balder greets Bayonetta. At least in this life, Bayonetta has never interacted with her father, even as a child. She has no reason to recognize his voice, even if she could remember her past. Around the station of the surrounding village, there are remnants of the clans that once called this place home, the Witches and the Sages. But now the streets are walked by mankind, believers in the imminent return of Jubileus, worshippers of Paradiso, followers of Father Balder, and the place reeks of lost history and forgotten memories. Some of them even come back to Bayonetta as she works her way farther inland, such as within the once Crescent Valley, home of the Umber Witches, when the angels of Paradiso attacked and the battle ensued. Jean soon after reappears to see if she can continue to kickstart the spark of Bayonetta's memory, glimpsing to Bayonetta that the two share in abilities and while Jean does look familiar to Bayonetta, it still is just not quite there. So Jean resorts to taunting Bayonetta. First a coy little game of keep away, which Jean handily wins by the way. Then Jean holds information over Bayonetta's head, being quite an instigator to match Bayonetta's sass. Jean gives her a little bit of insight, just enough to ignite a small remembrance of the past in Bayonetta. They knew each other long ago, they fought for some reason, a gravity-defying spectacle of dazzling skill and grace, but who was the winner? And why were they fighting? These little memory sessions are starting to wake something up within Bayonetta, long dormant skills that just need a little bit of help in being brought to the surface. This is what Jean will continue to do, this is what she wishes to accomplish to fully restore Bayonetta's powers and memories. The rest of it will be up to Father Balder. But you know, it's been 20 years since Bayonetta woke up, and if I recall, someone vowed to hunt Bayonetta. 
someone who by now has a little bit of facial hair, who just so happens to be in Big Red right now, someone who's hell-bent on exposing the witch to the world for the murderer that he believes her to be. He bugged Enzo some time ago and has been tracking Bayonetta's movements ever since. Oh, just look at this absolute charmer. A now full-grown Luca Redgrave, son of Antonio Redgrave, the famous journalist that found Bayonetta at the bottom of a lake, who was actually killed under the order of Father Balder. Luca's running from the Vigard police, almost like he's not actually authorized to be in the city, but Luca's got a few tricks of his own. He's followed in his father's footsteps and become a journalist, studying Vigrid and the Umber Witches, with his ultimate goal being to expose Bayonetta's existence to the world. He even still remembers the smell of her perfume after all these years. He can smell when she's near. Luca can't see into Purgatorio, where Bayonetta strolls about, but she does stop to share in some conversation with Luca for a moment, referring to him as Cheshire, Confirming to him that she is near, she's aware of who he is, and she doesn't stand in his way. That Luca feels so wronged by her actually seems to cause Bayonetta some concern in her own way. She's certainly not heartless and cold, but she can't answer why Antonia Redgrave was killed. Would Luca even believe her if she tried to explain? Explanations aren't really her style anyways. Better to just let the guy work things out by himself. And not too far away trotting about an empty church is a strange little being. Just who the heck is this? Bayonetta steps out of Purgatorio to investigate the little creature. Hmm, kind of looks like a mini Bayonetta, doesn't she? Seeing the girl sparks another memory within Bayonetta, herself as a little girl, resting outside her mother's prison cell as she softly sang Fly Me to the Moon to the child. But when Bayonetta snaps out of the brief memory, the little girl is gone. Instead, a greater angel of Paradiso attacks. The closer Bayonetta comes to the actual city center of Vigrid where Father Balder resides, the stronger the memories of her past become. There are triggers all over this place that cue into her own history, just as they were meant to do. And the higher sphere, the more powerful angels of Paradiso, speak to Bayonetta telling her of what they dreamed to come, asking leading questions, prying for information. They present a combative challenge to her, just as they are meant to do. Though, in all honesty, I'm, I'm not certain that they were supposed to burn the holy city of Vigrid. Weird choice for them to make, but who am I to question the angels of parody so? So, the small holy city is left to burn, as Bayonetta continues on towards the major city of Vigrid. And when she reaches the ancient Colosseum, once again, a great angel of Paradiso descends to taunt and instigate. And I'm kind of getting the feeling that Bayonetta isn't the only one with an affinity for extreme property damage. The place is left in rubble after their tango, but this angel, called Fortitudo, calls itself a sacrifice for the resurrection of the Creator. All these beings serve as a sacrifice for Jubileus. Their defeat at the hands of Bayonetta is necessary to awaken the left eye within her. More encounters with Luca take place, same with Jean, rehashing of information already well known to us, but is slowly being peeled back for Bayonetta. And with each step, she's becoming more powerful. It's time for a new phase of Father Balder's plan to truly begin. It's that little girl wobbling about again unsupervised. 
but surrounded by a fiendish group of angels that almost look like a threat to the girl, but turn to respond to Bayonetta immediately upon her arrival. That creepy voice of Father Balder shows up again, telling Bayonetta that the girl is the key to her future. Bayonetta has been searching for answers for two decades now, so she takes a flying leap through Purgatorio to retrieve the girl and keep her safe from what looms about. And when the smoke clears and the threat is dispatched, Mommy! Oh gosh, is Bayonetta actually Mamanetta? Imagine having Bayonetta as a mother. Actually, that might be kind of rad. But this little tyke is not actually Mininetta, offspring of Bayonetta. This is Cereza, from over 500 years ago. Bayonetta when she was a child. Not all that complicated, right? Well, we can slow it down and we can make sense of it. You see, Father Balder is exceedingly powerful, and in the centuries that have passed, he, as the right eye of light, has found a way to reach directly into the past. And with that power, he brought a very young Cereza into the present day with her adult self. But why is Cereza calling Bayonetta mummy? Well, Balder told her that if she was a good girl, then her mother would be along shortly to protect her and take care of her. And it does make sense that Cereza would think that Bayonetta, her future self, was her mother. Presumably, Bayonetta would actually look quite a lot like her real mother. So this little champion of children immediately clings to Bayonetta as her mother. Now, why would Father Balder do this? bring the past and the future together. Well, here is why. Oh. If there's two things I hate in this world, it's cockroaches and crying babies. Well, a crying baby cockroach would be truly terrible. So don't you dare cry. Yes, Mommy. You've got to be a strong little one to survive in a place like this. Remember when I mentioned before that when Bayonetta was a little girl, she was prone to crying and intense feelings of fear? Well, that needs to change. This Cereza needs to be different. This Cereza needs to be powerful enough of body and of mind to awaken the left eye of darkness when she comes of age. And who better? to instill strength into little Cereza than an older, stronger, emotionally stable Cereza. But tiptoe, I hear you say, isn't this going to create some sort of a time paradox? Isn't this going to collapse the future or destroy the past? Well, now hold on. We'll get to how this all plays out towards the end, but for now, we'll leave this affair as it stands now. Bayonetta has no idea who this kid is, and the kid thinks that Bayonetta is her mother. And it all comes together because of Father Balder. Little Cereza has landed herself into the care of none other than Luca Redgrave, who outright accuses Bayonetta of stealing the child. Well, it looks like Bayonetta just scored a free babysitter. Right in time for yet another escalation in angelic threat, a visit from a divine being called Temperantia, who gets all the reverence and respect that Bayonetta would deign upon something from Paradiso. It hearkens to the intended future of Bayonetta, the role that she has to fulfill, her sacrifice in resurrecting the Creator, unifying the trinities of realities, blah 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 blah, although admittedly it is quite a fun fight against this chatterbox. The danger of the Laguna of Paradiso is really starting to climb, 
Though you wouldn't really know it by watching Bayonetta, would you? If she carries concern, it's quite hard to see. Whilst traveling through the overlapping world of Paradiso, Bayonetta comes across the place where her mother was once held prisoner in the final stand of the Umbra Witches took place against Paradiso so long ago. A small carved toy is there, with Cereza and Jean's name at the bottom, though still, Bayonetta doesn't associate the name with herself, only that strange little girl. And speaking of which, Cereza and Luca are becoming fast friends. He gifts her with lollipops to calm her nerves and soften her tears, and it works. She's quite fond of this lollipop candy and happily cradles her stuffed kitty that she calls Cheshire. Seems Cereza will have many things in her future impacted by the kindness of Luca Redgrave. The grown Bayonetta is quite fond of lollipops. She's always got one on hand and she playfully refers to Luca as Cheshire. Those small childhood moments can have great impact. But then, a stir in the foliage around Luca and little Cereza. Not being able to see into Purgatorio where the angels and Bayonetta walk, Luca can't see what threat approaches, but little Cereza can. She lets Luca borrow her glasses for a bit so that he can open his eyes and see what's around him. And Luca witnesses just what the forces of Paradiso look like. They're not beautiful, angelic, graceful like you would expect. Oh, and Bayonetta in all her leather bodysuit glory. Luca finally gets that maybe Bayonetta didn't actually off his father at that lake 20 years ago. Maybe the chaos of the scene was actually caused by the Angels of Paradiso and not Bayonetta. Oh my, the drama. And a higher being of Paradiso attacks called Eustidia. And it has the nerve to cut off the eye of Cereza's kitty cat doll Cheshire. Well, that just won't do, will it? Before Eustidia is consumed by Bayonetta's infernal masters, it blasts off more prophecy about the return of Jubileus, the creator, more in depth now, almost spelling out the entirety of the story for Bayonetta. If seeing the Angels of Paradiso in their true form didn't fully convince Luca that perhaps his preconceived notions of Bayonetta were incorrect, then little Cereza kind of seals the deal. It's hard to argue with the logic of an innocent child. She doesn't have any agendas to push. She just speaks of reality as she sees it, and her mummy is a witch that fights to help and protect people. Her mummy fights the monsters, and she wants to grow up to be just like her. And it would seem that the kid is kind of growing on Bayonetta as well. When peril strikes, and the child is lost aboard a jumbo plane en route for the Isla del Sol, Bayonetta bolts to get on the plane and retrieve the child, and she will tear the plane apart to find Cereza. That is, if the forces of Paradiso don't do it first. But it's Jean who presents as the greatest obstacle. And all attempts at subtlety are gone. When Jean acknowledges the presence of the little girl and Bayonetta's concern for her, it really pushes the wrong buttons. Bayonetta is done being coy and teasing with Jean and pushes an aggressive advance against her. And Bayonetta does not just let Jean leave. She chases her down through the clouds, and Jean really begins to spell things out for Bayonetta. She commands that she meets her violent end to awaken the left eye to prove her worth, and another bout begins between the two. This time, though, this time, it's Bayonetta who wipes the floor with Jean. The balance is shifting. 
The call of Cereza pulls Bayonetta away from her victory gloat, back into the guts of the plane, and the kid? Oh, the little kid is right terrified. But this is another learning experience, to strengthen the child who's so prone to crying. In her way, Bayonetta encourages and comforts Cereza. Though the plane is going down in the middle of a large body of water, I might be freaking out a little bit too. But don't you all be worried. Old Luca appears right in the nick of time to get the little Cereza away to safety. While Bayonetta handles this absolute bundle of joy. Surfing about in the middle of the ocean. Not at all an anxiety-inducing, horrifying affair. Even when the whirlpool begins, and Bayonetta summons a giant tarantula to consume the sea beast in the depths of a watery vortex. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Oh good, oh good. A lot of little giant tarantulas, now it's a family affair. Oh, I'm glad, that's nice, that's real nice. Anyways, Luca, Bayonetta, and Cereza make it out safely, and end up flying on a missile to the Isla del Sol where Father Balder lives. Pretty standard stuff. Jean intercepts Bayonetta immediately upon arrival in the city. It's been long enough. If Bayonetta has made it this far, then she is ready for what's to come, and it's time to lay out the full story. Bayonetta's birth and heritage, the role that she is to play, their history together, what Jean did to Bayonetta 500 years ago. Though it all comes with a sinister twist and malice. Jean is still under the control of Father Balder. It's not the full emotion of the story, but it's certainly not a lie either. The two have a final battle, just absolutely devastating this city. Holy crap, the property damage, ladies. I hope you all have outstanding insurance. I'm just not sure what kind, what would cover this? But again, I suppose, it is a befitting battle between the two Umbra witches. They never did get to finish their combative test 500 years ago. And now we see that the ultimate victor is Bayonetta. Jean waited 500 years for this trial by combat, even if it doesn't matter anymore. The Umber Witches are gone, but this is a meaningful event and a reunion of long-lost friends. Bayonetta still can't quite remember all the details, but Jean snaps out of the awful control Father Balder has exerted over her for so long. Jean too remembers her former self, a companion and eternal friend who's waited so long for Bayonetta to return to her. Though the gem is still the pride of the Umbra Witches, Bayonetta no longer needs it to serve as the left eye of darkness. Though the left eye is still not fully awakened, Jean holds onto the gem and pushes Bayonetta away before a missile impact occurs. It's time for Bayonetta to climb the Ithaval Tower, where Father Balder resides, where Luca and Little Cereza wait for her. And once again, Father Balder's creepy cooing begins in Bayonetta's ears, but little Cereza can hear him too, referring to him as her actual father. And she's extremely excited to go see Balder. Cereza is taken to the top of the tower, a lure for Bayonetta to follow. The higher she climbs, the more warped and overlapped Paradiso becomes within Purgatorio, the more vicious the angelic forces become. A final stretch of challenges for the powerful and awakened witch to overcome before contending with the right eye of light atop the tower. Father Balder is every bit the smarmy crap pot you might expect him to be, though his fashion sense is quite on point for a man of his authority and power. Thankfully, little Cereza is quite at ease with Father Balder. He's not threatening the child. It's quite different for Bayonetta, though. 
He may speak as though he's a paternal figure, who cares for her well-being and her development. His ultimate goal, though, is not in restoring Bayonetta for any reason other than to awaken the left eye, to lure her here so that the resurrection of Jubileus the Creator may commence. Cereza be damned, Bayonetta be damned, this world be damned, it will be created anew. In the vision of Paradiso, the trinities of realities will become one, Inferno will be snuffed out, and the angels will rule. He and Bayonetta will unite to form the eyes of the world. As has been his plan for centuries, it's all come down to this. The right eye of light and the unawakened left eye of darkness engage in a great battle across the crumbling city. And though Bayonetta is exceedingly powerful, her inferno demon masters summoned against Father Balder are over and over again expelled from the fight. It would seem that the Umber Witch herself has grown beyond the demands and strength of the Inferno minions. While they are cast out, she continues the fight, and in the end, a well-placed bullet stops Father Baldur's attack. But this is not the end. Certainly, of course, it cannot be. This is just a moment of reprieve. Bayonetta must return little Cereza to where she belongs, to when she belongs, 500 years in the past. Though this Cereza will grow up to walk a slightly different path than our older Cereza, the split in timelines here will impact them both. This little girl will grow in confidence and in power, and when the time comes for her mother to fall during the attack of Paradiso, rather than lay down arms and lose the will to fight on, this Cereza will instead choose to stand and fight alongside Jean. The left eye will awaken and this change will impact our Bayonetta as well. The veil between realities doesn't matter when the eyes of the world are involved. The changes that the younger Cereza bring, the awakening of the left eye 500 years in her past, will impact our Bayonetta now. The power of the left eye of darkness fully awakens within Bayonetta. The long plot of Father Balder is finally coming together. Can you believe it? How exciting. It's time for Jubileus to be reborn. Oh, nothing was stopped. Quite the opposite, actually. Bayonetta performed perfectly. The past has been sufficiently impacted. Her powers fully realized, and the left eye is open. Perfect. Father Balder and Bayonetta ascend the statue built to hold the form of Jubileus. The two eyes overseeing the world, the great candidates who can impact the flow of history, take their places in the respective eyes of Jubileus, and the birth of the Dia begins. The wild card in this, however, is Jean. Freed from the control of Father Balder, and saved from destruction by the power of the left eye gem, it's now Jean's time to intervene in this tale and stop this wretched Dia from fully forming. She pursues Father Balder beyond Earth into the cosmos to stop at least one aspect of this sick ritual. Jean climbs the body of the Awakening Dia to the left eye where Bayonetta is held. Even with Father Balder's interference and prodding, she pulls Bayonetta out of the eye, denying Jubileus the power of the left eye. With only the aspects of Paradiso empowering Jubileus, it's now up to Bayonetta to destroy the Dia. The final true showdown begins between light and darkness that will take place amongst the stars beyond our world. The process of a world's creation is shown in many stages of conflict between the two, and with each stage, Bayonetta denies Jubileus her progression. 
finally bringing the final stage of the fight to physical combat, with the powers of Inferno infused into Bayonetta. The final death throw comes at the hands of a powerful summoning of a demon of Inferno, Queen Sheba, the absolute counterpart of Jubileus. And one good wind-up, and Queen Sheba punches the soul right out of Jubileus, flying it, of course, into the sun. That's not quite the end, though. Better to play it safe and destroy the husk of the Dia as well. A joyous affair for both Jean and Bayonetta as it careens back towards Earth. Leave no trace of Jubileus. Completely undo what Father Balder planned for so many centuries. Dismantle the faith of the place called Vigrid and finally end this whole resurrection affair. Ah, the end of one adventure, the start of another. This time, two Umbra witches are playing their games. Poor Luca, though, seems to think Bayonetta dead and gone, killed in the final blast of Jubileus's destruction. Oh, but who is that nun with those fancy red glasses giving funeral rites? Oh, look, angels. Oh, how nice. A familiar game. And it always seems to work. Paradiso takes the bait every time. Especially now, since this is supposedly the funeral of their great foe, Bayonetta. All but silly angels. That's not the case at all, is it? Ah, two Umbra witches play the game now. Killing the angels of Paradiso to satisfy the demon masters of Inferno. A game they seem all too happy to play. Rock on, girls. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>